Welcome to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, an evolved perspective on life with dogs. Well, it's all Welcome to the Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Fantastic to be here today, as always. Have a guest in the booth. Dr. Nels Rasmussen is back with us to talk about... Now, you have a new thing going on now. Well, yeah. Sort of. Calling it something (laughs) different anyway. Right. And an event coming up locally. And then you're also going to work your magic on our little dachshund, Leia, who is 16 now. Wow. And... Doing pretty well for 16, but noticing the aging for sure. I checked her out in the lobby. She needs a tune-up. I know. I know. It's been a little while. One thing that we're noticing, well, first of all, let's just reintroduce in case um, people are newer to the show and haven't heard you before. Um, So tell us us about the work that you do helping mostly animals, well, all sorts of animals. Yeah. um, and, And the ways that you help. Okay, well, uh, what I do is I work with uh, people whose pets are mostly pets that are in pain or paralyzed, and nothing that they've tried has helped their pet yet. And I help them to get their uh, their happy life back with uh, more mobility, less pain, uh, sometimes better digestion, uh, through uh, a technique called neuroenergetic balancing. Mm-hmm. And that is a way to uh, essentially reconnect the nerve and energy systems of the body so that they uh, run smoothly and efficiently and allow uh, normal mobility and activity to happen. So what are the ways that that... So you're basically talking about blocked energy. Right, blocked energy and uh, and actually the number one... Uh, underlying cause of that is being stuck in fight or flight. And how does one get stuck in fight or flight? Well, if you're if you're a dog or a cat, for example, it's usually something that happens that's very startling. Maybe you uh, you jump down off the couch uh, like you've done a hundred times before, but um, if you're a dog, you land on the cat and the cat goes off, <laughs> and suddenly life isn't what you expected. So, uh, you know, you get scared, maybe you get scratched, uh, and that's the kind of thing that would start a fight-or-flight response that you might get stuck on due to the uh, suddenness and intensity of the moment. And uh, so that's it's, what's nice about this, from my perspective, is there are actually physical ways to uh, reset that system. So when I think of getting stuck in fight-or-flight, I think of, like, something scary. Yes. Is that is that accurate? It's, it's scary and uh, often painful. So, yeah. So there's a physical Fear, component right. and to it. Right. There's okay. generally, especially when we're talking about animals. Now, when we talk about people, what we talk about is uh, is emotions and how we can scare ourselves by getting a letter from the IRS. But when it comes down to our animals, they're a little more in the moment and physical reality type issues related to uh, actual physical stresses, strains, traumas, and the scariness of what that might mean for them in, in the moment of, you know, having a big thing fall on them or they jumped on the cat or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. something that, that really set them off uh, both emotionally and caused some kind of physical trauma. Is there, are, do they always happen together? Pretty much, okay. yeah. Is it yeah. ever just emotional? It can be. I have had some cases where uh, prolonged emotional stress because of what the owner is going through. The, the like a divorce or death in the family. Absolutely. Or, yeah. 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 Um, or a, a disease, like a cancer diagnosis or something like that. Right. Right. Those okay. things that are very scary and stressful for us humans. And if, especially if the animal is, uh, is an only animal with that human who's, you know, the only person in the household then that bond is that just that much stronger. Mm-hmm. Uh, but even in, in multiple people households and multiple animal households, often there are certain animals that are just very attached to a certain person, and they just absorb like a sponge whatever that person is dealing with. Mm. So sometimes it can actually be like transferred. Yes. <clears throat> in fact... Um, More purely, like it wasn't <clears throat> the animal directly 
having a, a its own experience, but it was just sort of this chronic transferring of stress and the animals just soaking it in, soaking it in. Right. And then the body just kind of hits a, a tipping point. Yeah, it's that, that chronic word is, is really the key, the chronic stress that uh, eventually it just takes its toll. It's like a weight on the animal, and over time it breaks them down. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of times when I talk about um, how to help your dog through this or that, I just recently, I think it was just last week, talked with a divorce attorney from New York City about pet custody. and Oh, yeah. And then uh, after talking with her, which was actually a really interesting conversation, and then after talking with her, I talked a little bit about things that you can do to help your pet through transition if you're going through a divorce or really any sort of transition like that. And it always, you know, it's always like, I know I'm going to say it, but it's true. Like, take care of yourself to take care of your animal. Yes, that's uh, that's such a good point. And a lot of people don't get that. It's like they would sacrifice themselves to help their animal without taking care of themselves. And that doesn't really work that well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, I've got my little dachshund, Leia, with me. Leia is 16. My, uh, the longest and I got her when she was a, a baby. Um, she was like seven weeks old when I got her. She was tiny. And she's a little dachshund, so she's got the longer back. Um, she's been in excellent health for her whole life. And really, I think for 16, looks great. And we're taking a little video here, so I will uh, post it when I have a chance to do some editing to it. And then you can see Dr. Nell's. So he's just started to put his... I'm going to move around a Fingertips on yeah. Leia, yep. There we go. Get the mic set. And there, now I can And this is not, work. not her first treatment. Nope. She has been through this before. Yeah. And uh, the first time I noticed um, she had stopped going up and down stairs at the home. And I was like, what's the matter with you? And she was like, I'm not doing it because she had tweaked her back right or neck i think you often find right. I, I found it was really that started in her neck but it to her it felt like her back yeah and her you know back was kind of hunched and so i don't remember who i got connected with you through but um had you i think it was on the show and noticed leia's back really oh there was a little tweak yeah <laughs> now, was that a release or was that you finding a tight spot? Well, actually, because I had just worked one up above, it was actually, it was kind of both at the same time. Okay. There was a release and I had found a new spot. And so that she, uh, she could tell the difference between the old one and the new one because this one is a little more sensitive. Yeah. And it's, uh, I can feel it already starting to relax. You know, the, and that brings up a good point. She's been through this now. I don't know, maybe this is her fourth or fifth time that we've yeah. worked on her, you know? Yeah. And so her neurology remembers. Yeah. And so it, it often goes a little swifter when we have a practiced patient like her. I see. Seasoned. Yeah. Leia um, actually was in a couple wiener dog races in her, in her past, <laughs> in, her, in her younger years. And we actually raced at halftime of a Seattle Seahawks game. Oh, boy. Yeah, that was pretty <laughs> intense. Oh, there. I just felt her yawn. I couldn't see it because my arm was kind of in the way, but. I could feel her, her head make a little shift there. She's so cute. She's yeah. deaf now. Oh, yeah. I kind of suspected that yeah. from, from how she was acting in the lobby. Yeah. She was a magnet, though, for attention. <laughs> Always. <clears throat> and so what you're doing is you're... Uh, so describe what you're doing. Yeah. So I'm finding these points on the body. They're, uh, they're very significant. Just touching an animal is nice, and it helps just by you know having a good positive intent. But when you know exactly where to touch to essentially connect both acupuncture meridians and points that the, uh, the part of the brain, the cerebellum, that sets a muscle tone, it can evaluate what's going on in the tissues underneath the skin uh, just by a light touch. And that's what I'm doing. I'm not pushing or rubbing really hard. Mm-hmm. And so the brain is now evaluating the tissues and the tensions involved and uh, when it's needed and appropriate, the brain will cause those muscles that are tight and unbalanced uh, from left to right side of the body to become more balanced and relaxed. And so from a standpoint of uh, my past as being a chiropractor and doing manipulations, this, without manipulation, realigns the structure as well because it causes the uh, the muscles to become balanced on both sides of the body. And so misalignments become realigned when that happens. 
Now, I notice that you're on her right side, and we've actually been noticing her right hind leg has been weaker. Ah, okay. Like, it gives out on her almost. Yeah, yeah. Sort of, it seems, um, well, uneven ground especially, but she she's not as uh, sure-footed, and it seems to be her right leg. So would that potentially be connected with what you're doing or not necessarily? I would say... I would say uh, Probably, definitely connected. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah, more more than likely, it is connected. Yeah, that frequently these uh, these problems in the spine result in just that sort of thing, and it can be it can be a weakness or it can be a problem with what's called proprioception, which is the body's awareness, or you could say the mind's awareness of the body's position in space, mm-hmm. and so a, a less awareness of what that right leg is doing. So through habit and neurological patterning, she might move pretty ordinarily when the terrain is smooth because things just are, you know, running uh, on autopilot. She doesn't have to think. Cruise control. Right. She's on cruise control. And now when uh, she hits uneven ground, suddenly she can't respond appropriately in the moment. And uh, that's that's the kind of thing that people often see. It's like they come to a step, they can't go up it because they can't figure out how to make their legs do that now. Mm. And we correct the problem. And lo and behold, they start walking on uneven ground, going up and down steps. And, uh, you know, another thing I've, I was just occurred to me is that she's 16 and, you know, so she's in the elder dog category. And mm-hmm. a lot of the animals that I see are in that category. And depending on a lot of factors, diet and exercise and, you know, the essentially the quality of the care or the stress that they're under mm-hmm. in their family, all those things can add up to whether or not this will... Uh, will really be a, a major wonderful thing to happen to them or maybe just give them a slight bit of relief. Because, you know, I've helped paralyzed dogs that were pretty old get up and walk again. And then I've had other ones that uh, were in the same boat and, you know, they never really were able to respond. And I think it's largely because, uh, yes, they're at the end of their life, but oftentimes they're younger than many I've helped. And it, I think it's because their general diet and, uh, you know, way of being cared for through their whole life wasn't uh, exactly stellar. So I think of yeah. it as like a system that sort of um like I think of like murky water. Like it's not as clear, so it's harder for those connections or the signal for the body to be as receptive. Right. That's a that's a so actually that's like, a good visual for that because yeah. yeah, they're when they lack uh enough uh clarity of information, yeah, you know, the, through going through their body then, uh, yeah, the waters are awfully murky and, and you know, there's, you can shine a stronger light, but it's still not going to go very far. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Hi. <laughs> she's actually getting, um, she's been getting anesthesia-free dentals for a while now, and we were going up to every, um, once a month, actually, because her teeth, just as an older dog now, and a dachshund with her little, little smippy little mouth, uh, oh, the it just gets bad so fast. And right. so we've been sort of biding time with the anesthesia-free dentals. And she's, uh, the, I just took her in, I think it was last week. And the woman who's wonderful, her name's Shauna, and she's at Jet City Animal Clinic. She's really great. And she was <clears throat> called me back and was like, yeah, it's, it's a lot more tender than it has been. And, you know, long story short, basically it's time for the, uh, yeah. for the big one. So she's actually going... Um, under anesthesia tomorrow for a full dental and they'll be able to look and see, you know, under the gum line and look at the roots. I think they'll do x-rays and see if there's anything that needs to be pulled. Right. But it's always, there we go. Yeah. Good girl. So she's just starting to settle in now and relax. <laughs> um, <clears throat> it's always nerve wracking. I mean, anyway, but then especially with an older dog. Right. So it's like, ooh. I know I have to do it, but I'll be glad when it's over. But then I was thinking maybe this have her having this treatment beforehand is can't can't hurt. Right, having a, essentially going in, it's like it's like people who are going to go in for any kind of surgery or anything. The doctors generally they do a workup to see what your general level of health is because the healthier you are, the better you're going to respond to uh, yeah. having a, a major procedure done. Yeah, for sure. Anesthesia is no fun to come out of either. No. So do you often find that um, that there's points in the neck that, of course, that, I mean, oftentimes it's the neck? 
Yeah, I, I, in my past experience in chiropractic, I just found that most problems in the lower body seem to start with a neck problem, and then the body goes through compensatory uh, situations. It, it compensates for those neck problems and ultimately results in back problems. Frequently, uh, it, the person was never really aware that they had that much of a neck problem because their body was doing such a good job of compensating that it threw their low back into stress, and they weren't really aware of it until it got to be real bad, and their neck was uh, not really a problem as far as they were concerned. And yet, uh, I would often, on people like that, I would do a, a, a single neck adjustment and have a better result than if I manipulated all kinds of places in their body, including the low back where the problem felt like it was. I've been doing um, myofascial release for myself with a practitioner, and it's amazing how the neck and hips are so connected. Yeah. I mean, the tilt of the one and then, I mean, everything's connected. It's true. Yeah. You can't really tweak one thing out without the whole body basically realigning to to try to compensate or it's true it's true you know it's just like uh as strange as it may sound you can have a jaw problem that causes foot pain and you can have foot trouble that causes (laughs) jaw pain wow (laughs) i wouldn't have thought of that although he did say that hips and jaw are often connected but yeah yeah it's amazing i was actually curious to talk to you because um Last, uh, a few weeks ago, I was on um, Q13 News commenting on a dog who had, the whose house had been broken into, uh-huh. and the dog was um, shot, actually, three times. Whoa. And he survived. He's a German Shepherd, and, um, you know, they were following the story and, and about his physical health, and he survived the ordeal, but now... He's showing signs of trauma. Yes. And so that that's why they talked with me about that and just sharing my perspective on, you know, first of all, yes, dogs can experience and do experience trauma and can experience their version of PTSD and what does that look like and how do you work with them? And, and then I did a, a show um, to follow up with that short segment on TV. Um, but I was curious to hear your perspective on... Yeah. Especially PTSD. Right, right. Well, this work is based on uh, work um, developed by Dr. Mortar, uh, who is a chiropractor uh, and a researcher, and it's called bioenergetic synchronization technique when, uh, when done on humans. And he did quite a bit of work with people who had uh, PTSD as well as he felt that most people have a, a milder form, and I think he called it post uh, e- post-emotional stress disorder, something Mm. like that. Basically, people get under emotional stress, but it's not as bad as the uh, trauma of, you know, what we think of as PTSD. But prolonged stress causes essentially a body response that we get stuck in. And so uh, you need to do a reset on both the fight or flight systems as well as other systems in the body. And that's, that's what you know, this work, bioenergetic synchronization technique and this neuroenergetic balancing, which is based on that, um, that's what they both do is reset the nerve system and the fight or flight systems. And, mm-hmm. and that's, it's, it's powerful. In fact, I should tell you a story about that. Do it. Got time? Oh, yeah. Here's a short one. So uh, I was working with a woman and her horses, and she had a friend who's a Vietnam vet who had serious PTSD mm. and hardly ever slept, never smiled. And uh, basically, he just had nightmares, you know, all the time. And anyway, she said, I'll pay for a visit for him just to see how it helps. And so we just did a, a session of bioenergetic synchronization technique on him. And lo and behold, the next day, he got up with a smile on his face. He had slept the whole night through. Wow. And he was cracking jokes and singing songs in this. Uh, he lived in a kind of a complex where a lot of people, uh, similar vets, uh, lived. Mm-hmm. And the uh, the nursing staff who lived there were just totally flabbergasted at you know what had happened to him. He was a completely different human being, and it was just from basically you know resetting some important responses that his body had made that were necessary at the time. But when you're stuck in a response that's no longer necessary, that's when you have problems. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it does help PTSD-like problems. Yeah. 
It's such an interesting phenomenon because I think of animals, including humans, and our, you know, evolution over the years and our experience, um, you know, or like a deer or something like that, where are they like almost living in a constant state of sort of quote unquote PTSD or maybe you have to have a certain size brain in order to experience it because I mean prey animals are getting yeah I mean they're living in a constant state of of basically hypervigilance because there is actually right they could be a tiger at any moment yeah you know <laughs> right but it's like gosh like how is that well uh, you know and and I've done a little bit of uh, study of it and it seems to be that prey animals in particular because that is their life they have built-in systems to uh, to reset themselves, mm. and so for example, if you would you hope so. Yeah, <laughs> if you see uh, like on National Geographic or something, you see an animal that's been attacked by a lion or a tiger or something and got away. Right. You know, it just managed to by the skin of its teeth, just barely get away. And uh, a little bit later, they'll go through this period where they, uh, you know, they kind of tremble and then they do a lot of really vigorous shaking of their body, and I mean, you know, intentional shaking. And essentially that resets their system mm-hmm. and they, then they go about their business because that is their life. They are a- animals that yeah. are you know, oh, food for other animals. Didn't get me that time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. But us or even dogs, like where you can actually see the impact of like before trauma versus after trauma, not the same animal and that they're compromised in a lot of cases for the rest of their lives, at least to some degree, right. by that. Right, right. And this whole idea, too, of the post-emotional stress disorder thing, because, um, you know, I can look back on emotional stress like that I experienced in my adolescence, for example, around being outed when I was in the eighth grade, un, like, not by me. Yeah. Um, and how really that definitely had an impact on me right? Uh, that I've, you know, carried into my adult life and have had to, well, haven't had to, but have chosen to, you know, try to work out of the sort of automatic ways of being that that kind of caused me to be or associations that I made at the time. Right. But I wouldn't say that I have PTSD from it, but I would say it had an impact. Right, right. Yeah, it's like who doesn't experience something like yeah, that? Yeah, you know? almost almost everyone has something in their life. <clears throat> so, you have uh, uh, we only have a couple minutes. So Rasmussen reset. Yeah, the Rasmussen reset, uh, and that is uh, essentially doing. There's two specific areas in the body on either side of the body that uh, reset the uh, fight or flight system, and I'm going to be doing um, doing those for by donation at the uh, Seattle Holistic Animal Network open house this weekend, which mm-hmm. is March 31st. Uh, so Saturday from 11 to 4, and that's at a place called Interest Space, which is in the old Rainier Brewery building mm-hmm. behind where the Tully's Coffee Shop building Used is. to be. Yeah, used to yeah, be. I mean, it's still there, but it's it's closed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay, so that's this Saturday? This Saturday, 11 to 4, and okay. I'll be doing those Rasmussen resets by donations cool. to, to the network. And how do people find you? Uh, otherwise, you can go to healingministryforanimals.com. Okay. And, uh, yeah, it, you know, everything you need to know is there. Great. And how does Leia feel to you now? She feels a whole lot better. Good. Yeah, she's much more relaxed. She yawned several times through that treatment, which is always a good sign of a reset. Good. All right. Well, always a pleasure to have you on. Thank Thanks you very for much. being here. I sure enjoy it. And uh, we'll be back in just a few minutes with Patty Sherlock. She's the author of a book called A Dog for All Seasons. Great read. You're listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. Welcome back to The Dog Show. I'm your host, Julie Forbes. You're listening to Alternative Talk, 1150 AM. And we are back with Patty Sherlock, author of A Dog for All Seasons. Hi, Patty. Hi. How are you, Julie? Doing great. Welcome to The Dog Talk Show. Thanks. Nice to be here. Yeah. Well, as I was just saying, I was, um, I've been trying to uh, feverishly reading your book, trying to finish it, and I'm glad I 
didn't just now because I'm just a in the last probably 15 to 20 pages and it sounds like it's um an end of life story so yeah that's correct yeah so uh now you've the the main dog in your book that you've that you write about is your border collie duncan yes who just sounds like an extraordinary dog and oh, uh, he was. very very um sweet and smart and i just really you told the story and portrayed your bond really nicely we just i really got a sense for your life with him your you know day-to-day life with him and so tell us a, a bit about um now you lived in idaho do you still live in idaho i still live in idaho at the, on the same farm oh wonderful now you had moved away for uh a little bit is that right into to nevada I did. I took a job in Nevada, a temporary job, and it was actually there that I had the idea for the book. Mm. In Idaho, Wyoming, Montana, there's a border collie in the back of every pickup, and or an Aussie, or right. or a cattle dog. Yeah. So we're just we have an abundance of herding dogs here. But I I would take Duncan out. He was not used to living in an apartment, so I'd take him out very early in the morning on a walk, and I met many friendly dog walkers and walkers, mm-hmm. and many of them, it was the first Border Collie they'd met, mm-hmm. which was kind of a revelation to me. I just assumed that herding dogs were very common to everybody's experience, yeah. and uh, sometimes people were delighted when I when they'd say, oh, is this the kind of dog I see on television, the kind that, you know, pen sheep? And I'd say, yeah, well, this dog's a retired sheep herder. Yeah. And they'd be real delighted. And it it occurred to me, not everybody knows the story of what herding dogs do. And yeah. it's maybe a rural story, after all, that urban people don't know. Mm-hmm. We just had an event here on Vashon Island, which is uh, just west of Seattle. And it was a Vashon sheepdog classic. They were sheepdog trials, and it was pr- pretty much exclusively border collies. Yeah, they seem to dominate those. Yeah, trials. and uh, it was amazing. And they to see them move over the land, and they had to run like 450 yards to get to the sheep and then bring a flock wow. of four back and through gates and yeah. all this stuff. And uh, I have some videos of that posted on the Dog Talk Show website. Um, should check those out. It's oh, just will. beautiful. And I'm, I know you've you've lived with it, but... yeah. <laughs> It's really nice for us to get out, um, you know, get out of the city and just sit on a farm and watch the dogs work. Oh, yeah. It, I don't think it would ever get old. No, it doesn't. Now, it's interesting in your book you say that the American Kennel Club recognized Border Collies as a breed in 1995, but it, the American Border Collie Association wanted no part of it. That's exactly right. There, the difference in the philosophies was that they felt like the Kennel Club was looking for a breed type. And that would mean, you see border collies, some have ears up, some have ears down. Some are larger, some are very small. And the American border collie people, that's what they wanted to keep breeding for intelligence and skill. And they were afraid that if they went with AKC sort of guidelines, that they would get into dogs that were no longer selected for intelligence. They might be selected for beauty mm-hmm. or with showing in mind for a breed type. They might want to insist on certain physical characteristics. Yeah. So, yeah, they, uh, and actually I think the American Border Collie, that if you have an AKC, if you register them jointly there, they drop you. Huh. Interesting. Yeah. They don't want it to turn into uh, how the dog looks nope. and is structured. They want it to remain how the dog works. Right. Yeah. Well, it makes sense. <laughs> so know. if you're registered with them, the dog has to have two working parents or maybe one working parent, but it has to be from working line. Mm, interesting. So uh, now there, you told a number of stories about Duncan and which, you know, described his personality and 
He just, he sounded, like I said, he sounded just like an amazing dog. So what wonderful work ethic and a working partner, but also just a delight <laughs> and loved visiting with pretty much everybody regardless. And um, one thing that I really loved was his irrigation dances. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so was this where, where water would sort of shoot out in spurts and he would sort of flip in in trying to catch them or follow them? Yes, exactly. We're um, we're dependent in Idaho on irrigation. Mm -hmm. So many people irrigate with large nozzles that, that come out of pipes. So the w water comes from the ditch, goes into the pipe, comes out the nozzle. So you have the nozzles uh, laid out across an entire field. Mm -hmm. And Duncan would play for hours in those and <laughs> get soaking wet mm -hmm. and really look quite beautiful. I'm sorry that we didn't have a video camera because it was, oh, he could turn backwards. He could swirl. He could, and I liken it in the book to ballet, but it really was quite like that. It was graceful. It was really athletic, and it absorbed him for, even though he had chores and had a lot to do, when he was off duty, he had much energy to go and play in the sprinkler. Mm, it's really amazing yeah. how much energy they have. And it uh, lets you know, I've been talking about this more recently because I've had some herding dog topics um, more recently. And, you know, it's and within not just herding breeds, but, you know, uh, gun dogs, pointers, these dogs that um, were really meant to be working and running for eight hours a day or more yeah, and uh, that we're trying to make them into house pets. And it's for a lot of breeds or certain breeds. It's just doesn't work for them. And they, they develop behavioral issues as a result of it. Yeah. Years ago, I wrote a book called Some Fine Dog about a boy who adopts a border collie and tries to have him as an in-town pet mm -hmm. and the difficulties that that results in. And actually, I got my idea from talking to someone at a sheepdog seminar that was having huge problems with a dog that she liked very much, but it had such an inner drive to work, to be useful, to yeah. have a purpose. Mm -hmm. I think you wrote about that actually in this book, that conversation and the boy, because you, you were like, in researching that, you were like, I'm going to train Duncan tricks and see how long it takes mm -hmm. and he would just get them almost immediately almost immediately and, yeah. and my dog trainer friend when she edited the book for me she wrote me and said it's unrealistic right that the dog could learn this quickly and i wrote her back and said actually i tried these out with duncan and she she wrote back and said sigh border collies right i know <laughs> that's what our cattle dogs are like too we went through this um spell of uh, training Levi, our male, a, a new trick a day. And it was just like, okay, what's next? Got it. I think it's intelligence. And then I think it's also that this history of hundreds of years of trying to discern what the shepherd wants yeah. means that they lock into you so thoroughly. And mm -hmm. they're so eager to to sense what it is you want them to do. So I think part of it's intelligence. No, I think part of it is that great eagerness to please. Yeah, and the ability. They're really experts in human behavior <laughs> and communication. Yeah. Now, you had written uh, pretty early on in the book that made me chuckle, um, where I think you had said um, you were talking to somebody as you were, well, the story is that you acquire, you decide to start a sheep farm with your husband at the time, mm -hmm. and, you know, you're, looking into how to get this set up and looking into what breeds of sheep and all that. And then you end up getting a border collie because it became apparent by what other people were saying to you that you need a good dog. Mm -hmm. And uh, so then you're, you know, asking somebody, I don't remember who it was, but uh, you know, how do you, how do you train your dog to do that? Um, and he says, you, I would think it was like, you said, can I train him to, keep the sheep out when I'm putting their food down. Mm -hmm, that's correct. And then you said, well, how do I train them to do that? And the guy kind of chuckles or something to himself and says, you tell the dog not to let the sheep in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and uh, you're like, but how do you train them to do that? And, you know, he just said that 
when you've got a good, it says, quote from your book, when you've got a good dog, you just tell it what you want to do and it does it. And it's just remarkable. <laughs> In your story, you talk a lot about the animals, and there's quite a cast. <laughs> I especially enjoyed Aurora, the cat. Yeah. <laughs> one of a million. One in a million. Oh, yeah. I mean, she was just, some, sounded like something else, sleeping <laughs> on the horses and uh, a very, very skilled hunter. <laughs> um, and you, you know, talk a lot about your relationship with Duncan is the primary focus, your Border Collie. And you had some other dogs, and you tell the stories about your dogs prior to Duncan and that you were having a really hard time with the idea of getting another dog because you had lost the the few dogs prior to Duncan uh, tragically and early uh, because they liked to chase cars. And so yeah. they that ended up um, killing them. Yes. But you got sheep and so had to get a sheep dog and got a border collie. And um, and you, you know, your story also talks a lot about your sort of inward growth and in your relationship and um, and how the main the main common theme that you talked about was really having a voice. And there were times when you felt like you could have stood up for yourself or stood up for an animal and you didn't say anything, and you were sort of frozen with fear of yeah. upsetting, and that you, throughout the course of your marriage, which did end, um, but you did actually grow and kind of get to see that and kind of found your voice. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. And I can I can definitely relate to that, and it was, you know, really, I don't know, nice to sort of hear your your journey and and your thoughts on that and reflections on that and and there was one part where you went with a friend I think it was to San Francisco mm-hmm. and you were just sort of sightseeing and you went to a an episcopal cathedral that had a labyrinth and I guess this was something that some some churches have and it's a, a way to walk uh you you walk the labyrinth and as and it was described to you in the book as you walk in toward the center, think about what it is you want to surrender. Yeah. Every time you turn a corner, say what it is you are giving up. And I just really liked that. I thought that would be something I would enjoy doing. Yeah. And, um, you know, you talk about how you went in and, and that you're basically traveling to your center and it's symbolic. And, and then as you were... Um, talking about what you were giving up, you were talking about giving up uh, anger and fear. Yeah. And, um, you know, you talk about some stories where that, um, where you were confronted with that and didn't have a voice and then sort of learned to find your voice. And it was all about feeling what you needed to feel from the past and all that. Um, but you wrote what I thought was interesting the, at the um, sort of towards the end of you describing that journey, the other shoe fell with a thud Yet whatever I'd fear would happen um, had not. And one thing that I really liked about what you said was um, we're afraid to accept responsibility for ourselves because when we do, a lot of things that we have in place in the old way will disappear because they just don't line up with a new way of being. Yeah. And um, that that did happen, but it wasn't it was. There was loss involved for sure, but was ended up being a good thing. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Which I think it's hard for a person who is facing the loss. It's hard to imagine that something good will come out of it, but it certainly did for me. Yeah. And um, you have on the cover of your book, you have a quote from uh, somebody very, very special, Temple Grandin. I was so thrilled when yeah. my editor got that. You know, I didn't know her as an author. Mm. I knew her as a person that, in as a livestock 4-H leader and a person in the rural community, people sat around and talked about her new ways of doing things. Mm-hmm. And so it was a subject of discussion over coffee, that there's this new way of handling cattle. There's this new way of handling sheep. And so I knew her from that. So she was an idol of mine mm-hmm. before I knew that she was 
an author. And of course, in the meantime, I've read her books. Mm-hmm. But when I got that quote, my editor sent it. You just can't imagine how thrilled I was because this was an idol of mine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, what a compliment. Yeah. Now, have you seen the movie Temple Grandin? I have. Yeah, we just which, we just watched it a few weeks ago. Which only increases your admiration for the woman, doesn't yeah. it? Yeah, it was amazing. Highly recommend that movie. Uh, it's um, Claire Danes is the actress who plays her and does an extraordinary job yeah, of it, uh, portraying her. And then we watched some videos on YouTube of Temple Grandin actually at the award ceremony when uh-huh. the movie won. And it's... You know, she's there in her cowboy outfit and, <laughs> you know, uh, just with those um, where she ha- had those metal cows that she had on mm-hmm. her shirt for her ranking. Yeah. <laughs> it was, yeah. Just amazing. You know, I, I rank her up with someone like Jane Goodall or something. She's making a huge difference in the lives of animals. Mm-hmm. And she manages to do it in a way that she, she makes it profitable for the people to make the changes. Yeah. And it has to be in order for, you know, unfortunately, in order mm-hmm. for a lot of businesses to consider something, it's all about, yeah. comes down to the money. Yeah. So it was an interesting, uh, what is the word, I guess, insight into life with raising sheep and um, the attachment that you get to them. And, you know, they're like kind of like extended family. Yeah. And, you know, I don't think that we were unusual in that. I think that people who raise sheep, they, I've read, I've met at um, community shearing events, people that do not touch lamb because they get too attached Mm. to lambs during lambing season, so they don't eat lamb whatsoever. Yeah. They, they're too in love with sheep. Sheep are really remarkable and have really a bad rap for being stupid and um, thinking with one mind. And, of course, they are a prey animal, so they can behave that way. Mm -hmm. But, oh, they are just splendid mothers. Mm -hmm. The mothering instincts in many breeds of sheep are just remarkable. Mm -hmm. And there are people who raise sheep have seen them do very brave things. They yeah. know, they'll try to take on a coyote sometimes, the mother sheep. She's not going to win that fight. Yeah. But the fact that she'll try it is yeah. something. Yeah. She's not going down easy. No. And you know they have a reputation. People say, oh, yeah, I wouldn't want to raise sheep. They're always looking for a place to die. And the reason they have that reputation is they are so stoical. They won't say a word until they're almost dead. Mm-hmm. So they're just a very hardy animal Mm. go without water go without feed a lot longer than some animals they're they're really admirable you come to really appreciate them Mm -hmm. and you uh talked about that you were i think it was when you really started to acknowledge to yourself that perhaps it was time to get out of the business was when you dropped you went to drop off some lambs at a slaughterhouse yeah. And you were just like, <laughs> you know, trying to drive away. And you're like, I know these, I know who all of their mothers were. You're talking about repairing a broken leg and just the I, the image of them looking at you as you drove away buying. You were like, I can't do this. I'm not cut out for this. Yeah. I can't do it. And I can totally get that. Yeah. I had been shielded from that because. My ex-husband had had that chore. Mm -hmm. So I hadn't had to really do that until I was divorced. And so I didn't mind doing lambing by myself with the help of my daughter. And I didn't mind doing more physical work. Mm -hmm. And I didn't mind the weather. Oh, of course I minded the weather. But, I mean, I could handle it. Right. But, um, But that was one part that I realized that's just too hard. Yeah. Well, I can totally understand that. Um, I was in, I went to the University of Vermont, and they have a very strong agricultural program, and I was an animal science major, mm-hmm. so I spent some time, um, you know, and I work with dogs now, but I did spend quite a bit of time down at the farm, <laughs> the, yeah. the university farm and barn, 
And uh, I was, I remember my dad was up visiting uh, and I was raised in Massachusetts. So that's where my parents lived. And my dad was up visiting and we, I was showing him around the barn and we just happened to be there when a you uh, was giving birth. And we get to see the birth of a lamb, just, oh, you know, I... just the timing, you know. And we were just like, oh, my God, I think we went and got somebody and just let them know that it was happening. But then we we stayed and, you know, watched it happen. And it's really something to witness. It is. And, you know, I don't think there's any. I'm All baby animals, of course, mm. are <laughs> yeah. adorable. But I think maybe the top of the line is a lamb. They are the sweetest creatures. You pick them up. They want to lay their head on your shoulder. They snuggle up next to you. They are just charming little baby animals. Mm-hmm. And then when they get a little bigger, they're very funny. They go popcorning around the yard. They jump up on all four legs <laughs> at once. Uh-huh. You, it, you couldn't find entertainment. Yeah. To equal watching what's going on when lambs are playing. Mm. Very, very cute. I can only imagine. I haven't seen it. But uh, although I'd have to say Duncan um, dancing (laughs) with the sprinklers was probably a sight to match. Oh, it really was. That's true. (laughs) So, Patty, now Duncan, I can tell, is you're about to tell the story of him passing away. And I know he was, um, you know, the connection that you had with him was precious. And um, how, now this was in 2003 that he passed away? Okay. And um, now how, how are, how was that? Now you had a couple dogs still with you, is that right? Yes. I had inherited another border collie from my daughter when she left home. And that dog's name was Mimi. And um, then I had a dog, a rescue dog, the German Shepherd Malamute. And he is still with me. Mm. And that's Shakespeare? Mm-hmm. Okay. That's quite a mix. <laughs> he's, just, he's just a lovely dog. He's got the kindest nature. Yeah. And he modeled, he was the model for a book I did called Letters from Wolfie about somebody who sent a dog to Vietnam to be a scout dog. Mm. So yeah, I, I quite I modeled the dog in that book who was kind of a big happy galoot mm-hmm. who ended up in a war situation. Mm. I it was easy for me to imagine the the happiness that Shakespeare would bring to a, a grim situation. Yeah. Yeah, there's a. I did an interview some time ago with uh, Major Brian Dennis and his dog Nubs. Uh huh. Um, I don't know if you saw those stories. I think he was in People magazine and. Yes, I did. Yeah. Oh. And and I've actually seen uh, some footage since then of similar situations where um, there's dogs that end up sort of befriending, you know, these camps and troops just take them in and. And it, what it really brings to the environment. Yeah. And, I mean, I can totally get that. How, yeah. You know, especially people who really had connections with dogs at home. And, sure. you know, I would miss that for sure. Um, now, now you still live in Idaho on that on the same farm. I no longer have sheep. No longer have sheep. I'd like to get back into some form of livestock. Mm-hmm. Something that, where you don't have to part with the offspring. Yeah. Maybe lizards or something. Lizards. Are lizards livestock? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that will, gosh. Well, I guess you could just keep some as pets. Yes, you can. You can do that. Like, um, I mean, if you, would you have to spay a sheep or do you just not breed them? I think that you could, you would just keep weather lambs to keep down your grasses. Yeah. And then just let them go to a nice old age. Yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Now, what kind of dogs do you have now, assuming you have some dogs? I have Shakespeare, the German Still. Shepherd now, and I have a younger border collie named Mick. Mick? Yes, and he's a, he's a lovely dog. Because I don't have the morning and after and evening ritual with him that I had with Duncan. Yeah. I'm probably not as close to him, but he's um, a fun dog. 
he's a little more one person. Duncan was quite sociable with yeah. everyone. Yeah. Mick is a little more one person. But mm-hmm. also, uh, as many in his breed, a smart dog who has an inexhaustible desire to play. Yeah. And you have the benefit of uh, lots of space, which I is do. nice. Yeah. yeah, I have beautiful places to walk dogs. Yeah, we we are envious of you for that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's hard for us to find places to take our cattle dogs and yeah. have them be off-leash and seemingly, you know, how it should be for them anyway. But we do have places where we can take them herding. Oh, do you? Um, and there's a new place that we're going to go to, which is, I think, on Whidbey Island um, that does herding. And I think the person especially knows cattle dogs very well. So we're oh. going to plan a weekend very soon and take them out. And I bet you'll all enjoy yourself. Oh, so yes. Much. Absolutely. Definitely. And so... Now, are you partnered again, or no? I'm not. No, okay. I'm single. Yeah, and you're doing r- more writing. Do you have um, other books out, or? Yes, and I, I'm at work on a nonfiction dog book about a dog in Butte, Butte, Montana, that lived feral for 17 years on the Berkeley Pit, which is the number one super fund in America. Hmm. It's just a miserable environmental disaster and no one really knows how this dog survived and why he could not be tamed and why he chose to not come back and live with people but he's become a symbol for the town Uh of a dog that can endure and they've had mining up and down for their whole history yeah so it it's interesting research huh very cool. And are you doing uh, any other writing columns or uh, smaller I, pieces? I, on the this summer, I was on the road with my dogs and a tent and went to independent bookstores, and that was just a joy, and blogged about mm. the extraordinary dogs I met because, as you know, when you're at an event with dogs, people want to tell you about yes. the wonderful stories of their own dogs. And they're, they're, even if you've heard many of them, they're still astonish you, the, the place that dogs have in people's lives and the extraordinary contribution they make to a family. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's a, it's such a rich uh, world to be tapped into, it as really I am, and you, and you are in our own ways. Yeah. Um, and for me to, to meet author, I especially, I, well, not especially, but uh, I really love um, you know, reading all the books and having the opportunity to talk with the authors of the books and get some more information about the stories and and share the stories more, you know, with your voice. Um, now, your website is pattysherlock.com, and yeah. that's P-A-T-T-I, Sherlock.com. Thank you, Patty, for your time and wonderful book. It's called A Dog for All Seasons. I really enjoyed reading it. And talking with you, and thank you all for listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes. You've been listening to The Dog Show with Julie Forbes, Wednesday afternoons at 2 on Alternative Talk, 1150 a.m. Never miss another episode. Listen to our podcast online at dogradioshow.com or download them for free on iTunes or SoundCloud.